If you have your Bible and you want to turn, I'm going to read a few verses here in Matthew, which I've read before. We've kind of circled back to this text from time to time, but we're going to look at Matthew 23. This morning, um, how we speak and how we structure our church can be in a way that keeps people from life change. While speaking about change and transition and all of that and transformation, we can speak in a way that actually keeps people from the very thing we say we're about, or we can speak and act in ways that draw people into experiencing Jesus' life and life together on the journey. And um, to be honest, one way seems faster and more organized. Just going to give people a list, follow the list, do the things on the list, boom, you're, you're a believer, you're a Christian, all right, enough said, just keep doing the list and everybody's okay. That may seem efficient, it may seem easier, it may seem simpler, but it's not effective, and it doesn't change lives, and it's not very Jesus-y or kingdom. But then there's other ways of going about this, being in the kingdom, the centered set way, which sometimes seems plodding and slow, three steps forward, two steps backwards. Sometimes it seems like we don't care about sin or sanctification or all of those good Jesus-y word or, or, or Bible-y uh, thumping words, and, but that's not the case. We care about people experiencing fullness of life in Christ, and the way to get there is not what often it seems. It is the messy, the slow, the patient, the mutual, the in-community. So this morning, I want to read a few texts to sort of frame this, and we want to talk about, from Mark Baker's book, Centerset Church, um, how to do discipleship in a centered way. And we're not going to cover everything today, but we're going to scratch at a few things today uh, as we look at this. So I'm going to read to you from what is the classic passage called The Woes. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the religious folks, the Pharisees. And he has a whole list here. I'm not going to read all of them this morning. I'm actually going to read uh, starting at verse uh, 25. So Matthew 23, verse 25. I want to read this to you. He says, speaking to the religious folks around him, he says, woe to you, uh, experts in the law. And the, you Pharisees, Pharisees were like the religious uh, laymen of the day, one of the groups. Woe to you, Pharisees. Studied scripture really well. Had it down better than any of us. Woe to you, experts in the law and the Pharisees, the Jewish law, Torah, what would be the our Old Testament. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. Hear this, hear this, see this imagery today. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus continues on, and he is in sort of prophetic denunciation preaching mode here. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so that the outside will become clean too. That's sort of counterintuitive when you think about that in terms of lives, right? And he goes on, he says, Woe to you, expert in the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Welcome to church, preaching Jesus' prophetic denunciation. And he goes on and says, You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you look you look. You look righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I might as well give you a little more here. Here's another one. There's a whole list here of the woes. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if I had lived in the days or if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says this, by saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. And you can read the rest of it, but you get the the kind of tone in the picture that he's painting here. 
In Galatians 6, 1, Paul says that we are to restore others. If you see a brother or sister caught in a sin, you are to restore them gently, lest you also be pulled into sin. And we'll read some of these other verses throughout the message, but let's pray. Lord, we have this opportunity to wrestle with what does it mean as a church that's been on a revitalization journey, pause through COVID or whatever version of COVID we're in now, but coming back out of that. And Lord, early on in this journey that we began almost five years ago, we, re- we talked about this idea of knowing what should be in the center and what should not, what hills to die on and what hills not to die on. And we asked these questions about how do we become more loving and what does that look like in practice? And as we have learned from Mark Baker and, and uh, Frank Hebert, the missiologist, about this idea of being a centered set church, we are still unpacking it, Lord, and we'll probably be unpacking it for our whole lives uh, in terms of moving from that bounded focus boundary line drawing to being turned towards a center defined as you, Jesus, and the things that each local church uh, begins to wrestle with in that center. So God, I pray today as we work through this, that you would anoint me, that you would anoint our ears and our conversation and our discerning together as we lean into this as a community, that this is a monologue intended to spur dialogue, intended to help support and equip the community of believers and questioners in this house. So, Lord, do your work today. I know I can't change anyone's heart, and so I'm not even going to try to wow them, Lord. I want to just let your word and this wrestling with this teaching do the heavy lifting. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated this morning. Again, I'm glad you're all here today. Glad you're here uh, engaged with us. We have been wrestling with this center set stuff, and let's put the graphs up on the screen again just by way of review for anyone that might be watching this for the first time. Um, hello, Tyler and Claire. All right, okay. They just walked in, I think, so I'm saying hi. Um, I feel bad for this young couple. Like, they were going to go to Taiwan. Like, they were going to go and do this whole thing. Oh, now they're, now they're like, looking, and sh- looking away. I'm not shaming them. I'm just saying they were going to go, but their whole thing got canceled because of all the, the, how the testing works. And they're, anyway, I'm, anyway. But I'm glad they're here. But on the other hand, it's not Taiwan. So, um, okay. Uh, there's a few things to just go by way of review. Bounded set. Again, bounded set is a very line-focused kind of way of being a community. We can organize a church or different groups around this bounded set. You have a clear set of rules, a clear set of expectations. You either meet the expectations or you don't. You're either in or you're out. The problem with it, of course, to review reminds us that really we become so line-focused, we are less concerned about what truly is holding us together, what's drawing us, what's, what's, a, what's the trajectory, what's the journey in the bounded set? Well, there is no real journey. It's just relationship with the line. It's not a continued lifelong pursuit. As long as you keep ticking the boxes, you're in. This actually fundamentally goes against the very nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, the New Testament language for being a Christian is this language of journey, of being on a journey, of being on the way was one of the early phrases for the church we read in the New Testament. This sort of throws out the whole concept of being on the way with Jesus and towards a more Christ-like life and world, uh, throws it out. The other problem with bounded sets, so it can be fundamentalist, hyper-conservative churches can, can be this way. They don't necessarily have to be this way, but many are that way. I was saved in a church that we had a mix of both, I would say, a bit of centered, but very bounded as well. We had lines and rules for everything. I mean, everything. 
Mark in these two chapters that we're kind of unpacking pieces today talks about the story of some folks that were uh, in this meeting, and once they got out of the meeting, some of the guys lit up cigarettes. And uh, in that context, they felt it was okay to smoke uh, because of the way they were experiencing faith versus what they were from in terms of the church. And he said, I could have jumped on them, but he says, what I did is I worked through this idea of, well, let's talk about your experience in church, and then later you can have those deeper conversations about health choices and is this the wisdom of Christ and the best for you and all of that, instead of it being front-loaded to fear and shame people into performing and hiding, whether it's about smoking cigarettes or things uh, that we might view as greater or lesser than that. Fuzzy said, by the way, liberal progressive churches can be just as bounded. Um, it can be just as hard about the boundary as well. Um, oftentimes weaponizing justice in such a way that doesn't allow for transformation as well. Or honesty, people get polarized, and that polarization is a bounded set mindset. We see that in politics, bounded set polarization as well, is, is this bounded set identity. Uh, a little more a review, fuzzy set. Well, so let's get rid of the line. Let's have, you know, like Naked Pastor cartoon that I shared in like the first message. Jesus is focused on the line. Jesus is focused on erasing lines. Notice Jesus is not at the center. Jesus is not focused on people as much as he's focused on the lines. It, it looks like he's focused on people perhaps, but what is that that's drawing those? Well, this idea of, well, if we get rid of it, then everything will be fine. Well, no, then we come to sort of this bland, uh, sort of vanillaizing everything, this sort of like, there is no call. You do you. Everything's okay. You can never call someone uh, to account on their actions and what it's doing to a relationship. So Fuzzy said is also can be really destructive as well. The goal, what we're learning, is to have a strong center as a church organized around Jesus, and we care more about the identity of the direction and the trajectory, which where is the person headed, their, their little arrow? Are they headed towards Christ, turning away or away from Christ? And those are the kinds of conversations we want to have. Those are the kinds of things we want to engage in that help us uh, move towards Christ and to continue that journey towards Christ and call one another to turn towards the center. So we're more concerned about the center than we are about necessarily the list or the lines on the edges. And when you begin to read the New Testament in this way, Verses from a bounded set mindset, it changes everything. When you read those virtue and vice lists that Paul gives in Corinthians and Galatians, in the context of what he's saying, the overall context of Galatians, for example, he's not giving those lists that we focus on the list. He's been going through spending the first uh, four chapters of Galatians, getting them away from a bounded set. And he says at the end, ultimately, we are driven by the law of love in Christ Jesus. And that the only thing that ultimately matters is faith being energized through love. That changes how we identify. These lists are there to guide us to have that sense of way markers, but they're not there to be like a bounded set. As long as I can tick all the boxes, I'm good and it's over. No, 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 no. Faith being energized by love, heading towards Jesus. So this is sort of a summary of what we've been talking about. So today, I want to just spend a little more time on what does this look like on the ground? What does this look like on the ground? Um, boundy, bounded and fuzzy churches are line-focused, but the call here is to be in a different relationship with power and a different relationship with one another and how we organize as community. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, silence is violence. How many of you heard that? Silence is violence. Talking about looking the other way when something is going horribly wrong that should be confronted. This is the problem in the fuzzy set, for example. Silence is violence. I remember um, there's a story, I should say, from Mark Baker is telling a story here. He said he had a conversation with a recent college graduate working with an organization focused on issues and change. And so I said to him, so you're working for, the transformation, for transformation to change people. 
And he's working with an organization focused on issues and change. And Mark says, so you're working for transformation to change people. And he automatically said, no, I'm not. In fact, the word transformation and change was fine when applied to paradigms or systems. And this is why I don't feel it well in progressive or conservative camps, because this kind of thing right here. But when applied to individuals, it was radioactive to this young man. He wouldn't get close to it. He could see the need for system, system, systemic injustice and change out there. But when it came to, but you understand that systems are made up of individuals as well, right? So you have to actually deal with both if you want to see change in the world, in life. That's the power of the local church when we're aligned around a center. We talk about systemic problems within our lives, and our community, in Vancouver, wherever God's placed us. But we also talk about individual issues as well. It works both. It's not either or. It's both and. And Mark was saying that this challenge was with this young man was so excited about getting involved in this, this, this uh, group that was going to work on, I'm leaving the issue intentionally vague here, on some big change. But then once Mark asked him, so you're working for a transformation of individuals, he couldn't, he couldn't like put the two together. And I think that's a problem we have today. We have conservatives, it's all about the individuals, and I'm generalizing, of course, so, so there's uh, uh, exceptions to this. All about the individual, heart, sin in our hearts and issues in our own behaviors, and then completely ignore systemic issues. Well, why is it that property is so out of whack in, in North America? Why is it that the 1% or whatever, why do we have all these things like this? So sorry, I'm stepping on toes here, maybe, I don't know. Um, uh, and then you have the other side. They're like, oh, well, look at all these systemic issues and look at all this, but, but you know, God help you if you want to talk about my choices as an individual. No, I can do whatever I want. There's no, you know, there's sort of this weird divide between the two. I think in Christ, we pull it together. So this idea, again, is tolerance is important, but it's not the supreme virtue. And the Bible emphasizes virtues related to tolerance, humility, graciousness, kindness, nonviolence, love of enemies, This is over and over again. Jesus talks about these things. Paul reiterates them. James reiterates them. Peter reiterates them. It's all throughout the New Testament. And those who affirm tolerance tend to believe in good relationship, uh, but often believe good relationships about avoiding disagreements or even ever calling someone's view into question. But Jesus calls us to treat people well, but also speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25, the first century Paul writes this. He says that we are to speak the truth in love. And I've said this before, but this is important as we ask these questions. So what does that look like in this message and the last few in this series? How do we do that? How do we be centered set in our discipleship of one another? Speaking in a way people can hear is important. Say it with me. Speaking in a way a person can hear. This is important. There's resistance to truth-telling. When we, especially if we've come from a bounded church, and many of us have come from that, we got saved in sort of that era of evangelicalism where there was a lot of line drawing, and different churches drew the lines differently, but a lot of line drawn. We can pendulum swing all the way over to the fuzzy side of things, but then we miss this power of life change and transformation and truth-telling. But we can't just blurt the truth out, whatever we may think the truth is, without context, community, and love in a way that someone could actually hear And we also have to be in submission to one another because it needs to be a two-way truth-telling if it's going to be transformative for them and for us, whoever they may be. I often don't get it right. I like how Mark Baker states this. We need to lower our resistance, the resistance that people have, by leading people to differentiate between two types of communication, the bounded exclusive judgmentalism on one hand or centered loving intervention on the other. 
The New Testament's teaching on confession and accountability, I like how Greg Boyd says this in Repenting of Religion, if the New Testament's teaching on confession and accountability seems to us to stand in tension with its strong teaching against judgment, it is only because the New Testament presupposes, hear this, friends, it is only because the New Testament presupposes an understanding of community that is largely absent in the modern church. Without this understanding of community, and this is worth all, of the, 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 all your admission fee today, without this understanding of community, we don't have a context to obey in a healthy way the New Testament's teaching on the role of community in transforming us by holding us accountable. When we try to apply this teaching outside of the context of community as understood by the early church, it becomes killing judgment. It becomes judgment. This is important to understand, this power of the center set community. Let's talk about one other thing here today around this, this idea of disintegrative shaming and reintegrative shaming, or disintegrative shaming and reintegrating, shaming that reintegrates or shaming that disintegrates. Paul in this passage in second, this is, should be second uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, second Corinthians chapter five, chapter two, verses five through eight, talked about a church dealing with a guy that was in an extreme sexual sin, messing with other people's covenant relationship, breaking all kinds of healthy boundaries. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, he had, and maybe in between, he had written them about uh, delivering this one unto Satan, putting up a boundary for this person. And note, it's in the context of community, it's in the context of restorative uh, justice, restorative kingdom work here. And then in 2 Corinthians, he tells them, you've gone too far, welcome this person back. They've made changes, now it's time to bring this person back in. There's something also in, the, uh, in our world that has been influenced by some of the Anabaptist background um, called VORP, Victim Offender Reconciliation Program. And I remember in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there was a woman from a church that was in a rural area who, would do, who was part of this VORP program in South Dakota. Her name was Lois Jansen Preheim. For any of you that have any Mennonite Anabaptist background, like that name is one of those things like you, could, you can cash that name in, you know. Uh, Lois Jansen Preheim. So she talked about this VORP program. I remember hearing from the first time when she was doing a presentation in our church. And by the way, if you go Google VORP in Canada, there's some marvelous YouTube videos. I wanted to play one, but it was six minutes long, and I decided not to. But uh, maybe I'll send it out in a pastor email. But, um, but it's this idea of how do we help people not simply be punitive, not simply um, shame them to a point of we are attaching to their lives a sense of, of, of their brokenness or their destructiveness, that we're, we're, we're weaving their identity into the action so much so that we're almost destroying the person in our attempts at getting at justice. But the idea of things like VORP is a very kingdom Jesus-y thing that we want to make space for people to, yes, be called out on things that have been destructive, but enable them to come back into a wholeness and a healing between those that were victims and the offenders and seeing a new thing happen where possible. In fact, to tell you a little bit more about VORP, just on a side note, it recognizes that when a crime takes place, Interpersonal relationships between the victim, the offender, and the community are all wounded or injured. This idea of restorative or reintegrative justice or healing or shaming that, that rebuilds allows an offender the opportunity to meet with their victims and apologize to make things right. We've talked about that on a lower level in our discipleship track stuff on personal peacemaking, right? That's Jesus-y stuff. How do we make things right and make a new world a better world? 
The process for VORP involves meeting the offenders and their families to talk about how their actions affected those closest to them. And once they rebuild trust with their families, they meet with the victims to apologize and make things right as possible. It says this, the offenders still experience shame to acknowledge their offenses to people who love them and to the victim will involve feelings of shame. There's no way to not be shameful when you're telling the truth about something you did that was destructive towards someone else. But the process is not designed in order to shame and exclude the offenders. It's designed to release them ultimately from shame by acknowledging the shame of their actions and replacing it with dignity and restored relationships. This is this idea of how we talk about church health and life. When someone does something that offends us, how do we engage with it in a way that doesn't attach shame to them as a person but begins to identify an action as destructive towards them or others? How we speak the truth matters. How we approach, how we confront someone matters. We can do it in a way that destroys or we can do it in a way that builds up. I want to pause for a moment and say this. Um, you still with me? Say amen. amen. I'll land it soon, I promise. And all God's people said amen again. Okay. Jesus spent much more time freeing people from shame than shaming them. Much shame is inappropriate. And our world and even our church has often gotten shame wrong. It is disintegrative shaming. It is destructive. It is destroying. It is leaving lives broken and wounded and angry and bitter. Oftentimes, we shame people in a way that's not in line with goodness and restoration. Even when they are doing something destructive, we tend to overkill. We see the story of Jesus pouring dignity into the souls who have been shamed in his day. He does this with the Pharisees. He's actually calling the Pharisees out for their shaming. And he's doing a kind of shaming that allows them to open up to either be changed as religious leaders or to ignore it and double down on their destructive practices. Yes, our first call is to liberate people from inappropriate shame. But there is something where we're still called to, to, for them to attach that sense of this is destructive and wrong to the action, not to their self-worth. You hear what I'm saying? There's a, there's a difference. There's a way we can go about discipleship that is forcing people to perform and hide either externally because of the fear of disintegrative shaming. They don't want to experience that thing where they're totally ostracized, they're totally excluded, they're totally sort of destroyed by the community, as it were. Or there's a kind of talking about it where we're helping someone attach to, you know, when you're rude like that, when you speak that way to me, that action, what you're, that action that you're doing, like talking about what, how that action functions and why the action does have shame attached to it. But that's not you. That's not your essence. That's not the, the center of who you are. So we're wrestling with this in a centered set church. How do we do discipleship, especially around things that are destructive? But our first call, again, is to liberate people from inappropriate shame, to heal their wounds from this wrong kind of shaming that has happened. It's wrong, for example, let me use a modern example here. This one will get me in trouble. It's okay. Suitcases are packed. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> many of us who may be traditional to conservative Christians regarding all of the LGBTQ issues that are in our society and people that connect to people... Our wrong response to pride is to do what I see from some on the far end of one spectrum, is to pour on more shame for people who have felt shamed their whole lives because of what they're wrestling with in their own being. The wrong thing you need to do is to pour more shame. The wrong thing you should do if you are a conservative, traditional Christian about all the things during Pride Month is to pour on more shame on people. How is that going to bring about any transformation in anyone's life and whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in, in one's life? 
I could preach a whole sermon on that. I almost thought about doing a series on that. I'm not ready to do that yet next year. Okay. <laughs> if we're going to hold up a traditional view, narrowing view from the wider culture, you can't do it in a shame way. I don't care where you're coming at theologically in a way that doubles down on shame doesn't bring about the kind of world we want to live in, and nor is it very Jesus-centered. Jesus did shame people, by the way, in a reintegrative way, occasionally. Zacchaeus, for example. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? I got saved young enough that I remember a Sunday school that Zacchaeus was, this is a horrible song, if you think about it, wee little man, wee little man was he, crawled up in a sycamore tree. You know this song? Anybody know this horrible Sunday school song? Okay, okay, I see some hands in the room. You know it's not just, not just making this up. And Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus crawled up in the tree to see Jesus, the story tells us in the Gospels, and uh, the song puts it in a nice summarized way. Jesus calls up in the tree, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, come down. Zacchaeus was a collaborator with the Roman Empire. Zacchaeus was despised. Zacchaeus was being shamed by his community, heavily shamed by his community, and yet he continued in the path of doing destructive things regarding taxation and theft in the process of collecting taxes. But what does Jesus do first? He doesn't shame him on the way. He doesn't shame him in front of the crowd. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. And meal fellowship, table fellowship with a known, notorious sinner that people hated. He entered into his house. Table fellowship within Judaism is a way of extending the full hospitality that we are in unity with one another. Jesus eats with him first. He comes in and the power of what was in Jesus was greater than the power that was in the community that was shaming Zacchaeus and was greater in Zacchaeus' own heart. And it opened up this conversation, this space for something supernatural to happen in Zacchaeus' life. But so often the church, we lead with, look at that sinner up in a tree colluding with the Romans, you know? We just double down on shame. And we assume that we know the Holy Spirit's pace in their lives, whosoever they may be. If we're going to be Jesus-centered, we need to create space for people to wrestle with all the things, even if we don't see change, whatever change we think they need on, their, on our timetable, we need to trust God's work all the way to the life of the world to come. And if you read C.S. Lewis and The Great Divorce, God may be doing stuff in our lives, who knows, on and on and on and on. There may be projects of the Lord all the way, but in this life, how we hold, how we approach things matters Immensely, the message is, the method is the message. In Luke 15, we have the story of the lost son. And I'm, I'm almost landing it, I promise. I'm almost there. Luke 15, there's three parables, lost coin, uh, lost sheep, lost son, right? In the lost son one, the story of the running father. The lost son did things that were shameful and sinful, he sold the family inheritance, his part of it, which was against Torah, was against the law. It was against the law. It was against the religious law. He shamed his father by asking for that inheritance early. He shamed by leaving and going to the far country. He shamed by sleeping around with prostitutes. He shamed by eating with pigs. He was violating all kinds of every kind of religious law, just about every kind of religious law within Judaism. He was doing that. And he finally begins to have an awakening. See, he was on his arrow, was away from God, away from Yahweh, or we would say away from Jesus. But something within him remembered his father and how his father even treated the workers on the family farm or the family ranch or whatever we call it, the family land. And he began to have some sort of awakening. Maybe if I went back, I'm starving, 
I'm barely, I'm eating the slop with the pigs. I, I just, I, I squandered all my money. I've done everything. And he, something clicks in him. Something of, I would use anachronistically say the Holy Spirit was still working at him because the Holy Spirit's working on everybody everywhere until God brings about the new creation and the Holy Spirit and he begins to come back home and in his own mind full of shame because of his uh, decisions maybe not even shame because of what he did but shame because he had no more money and he had to eat with the pigs it may have been a low level of his own shame but he decides I'm not worthy to do anything else I'll see if my father will hire me because he at least treats his servants better than what I'm experiencing here His motivation to come back home, think about that. We don't know someone's motivation when they're being pursued by Jesus, when they're beginning to respond. We don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. We don't know the process in their mind. We don't know the layers of woundedness, the layers of shame that have been put on them, the layers of brokenness that have been put on them or of their own doing or a combination of all of it. We don't know all the societal factors from generations before that have influenced this person. And here he finally decides, I'm going to come home to my father. And if he came home to the traditional church that I experienced Christianity in, while he was a long way off, one of the parking lot attendants would have spotted him, would have called in to, or walked over to the main building, would have said in the main building, hey, we need, to, we need to be careful. There's this really raggedy guy that's approaching the facility. We don't want him to upset any of the young families or any of our uh, uh, you know, folks. That we, we, we want to make sure that we properly isolate this person. We want to minister them. Of course, of course we want to minister them because you know, we're good Christians. Uh, but you know, we want to make sure that, you know, go sick the usher team on that guy. He's coming in. Who is that? Should we tell, should we tell the master? Should we, should we tell the... Should we tell, no, 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 don't bother him. You know, he's doing his own thing. He's running the whole thing. You know, don't mess with the CEO. Uh, We'll take care of this. And the parable, we would have doubled on shame. We would have brought him in through the back door, the side thing. We we maybe would have, or or we maybe just said, you know, we're going to send you to a homeless shelter. Don't even come into our space here. We're going to send you down on the side road there. Uh, Here's $20, go away. But what does it say? No, instead of shaming someone, who's responding in some way to a felt need in their life, prompting the Holy Spirit, we don't know, we're not God. It says, when the father saw him from a long way off, you know what the father did? The father took on public shame to bring the lost one back in. And the lost one had not repented yet. The lost one had not confessed anything yet. The lost one hadn't admitted anything yet about their life other than the obvious physical thing that everyone could see. The father runs and pursues, lays down his dignity, lays down his sense of propriety, lays down his sense of rule keeping and boundary set. He completely burns up the line. And he's not with Jesus with the little eraser. He burned the line, runs through the line, and he comes and embraces as my son who was lost has returned home. The father understood that the power of the welcome of the kingdom of God has power to change lives more than putting the list out there and trying to perform and hide. So centered set discipleship says, how are we responding to God's love in our lives to run towards those that he is bringing back into his kingdom or he's calling back to their proper home in him, which is everyone everywhere. It's not in my sermon, but it's, it fits. <laughs> so we are called, finally, I'll just land with these principles again. I love the language that Mr. Baker uses. He says of the language of intervention. Say it with me, intervention. Because oftentimes we talk about confrontation, correction, intervention, and discipline. And for those that have been steeped in, in like, tolerance as a su- supreme virtue, here confrontation is harsh. And they'll hear that as a sword instead of a scalpel, he says. 
So he likes to use this language. How we even talk about this is encouragement, affirmation, and intervention can help someone in confronting sin in someone's life by affirming them or calling them to the next step in their journey towards the center. So quickly he says this, we need to prioritize people rather than rules. Say it with me, people over rules. The person is the priority, not the rule. Well, you can say that too. The person is the priority, not the rule. That's good. Yeah, yeah. The person is the priority, not the rule. When the Pharisees were mad about Sabbath breaking, Jesus said to them that Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. That the point of these lists in the New Testament is not the via bounded set church, but rather they point to health and things that make for wholeness. But how we go about using those lists matters immensely. We don't use them as, as a Bible to whack people over the head with. We don't use them as just a sword twisting in every which direction. We use the, the word of God as sharp as any double-edged sword cutting to the bone and marrow like a surgeon's scalpel, not like some random crazy American shooting everywhere in the direction. Every way. Like some of you are like that with your, with your faith and how you see these lists. That's not how it's supposed to be applied. Look at that. I took a cheap shot just for you Canadians here. So we prioritize people over the rules. Many are walking away from Christianity because we have acted like the Pharisees. And we need to hear this. I need to hear it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You wash the outside of the cup, but on the inside, it's filthy. We need to be people that talk about what is someone's next step and how do we help people make things right, restoration and reconciliation. I've got one more, and I'm just going to bring her down. I like this quote again. Centered set church leaders will seek input from others on how best to help someone in their discipleship walk on a whole range of things, including calling them to positive actions. Interventions will not be limited to a list of inappropriate behaviors. A bounded approach focuses on the boundary line and the presenting issue. The centered paradigm creates space for a broader perspective and allows time for the journey. Everyone is on a journey away from or towards from Jesus. We are all on a journey. No one has fully arrived. Look at your neighbor and say, you haven't arrived yet. Come on, look at your other neighbor. Tell them they haven't arrived yet. So how arrogant can we be when we come across forgetting that every one of us is still on that journey together? Therefore, he goes on and says, we cannot demand immediate correction or complete alignment with the center after one intervention. Instead, we seek to help people take the next step. Say with me, next step. What is the next step in this person's life? How can we acknowledge our need to rely on the work of the Spirit to discern the answer to the question of next steps in our walk with Jesus? One final quote. We also ask questions about the next steps with anticipation, eager to see where God will begin the healing process and how it will continue. These are discipleship questions about next step. But, 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 but. The person in the church, early on in my ministry, I'll give you another example of this. I was doing young adult and college ministry. For those of you that don't know, young adults and college students struggle with sex and sexuality, especially if they've been raised in a religious home and what do they do? <laughs> and early on, I had to make a choice. I had young couples coming to me, some of them living together, some of them, uh, you know, just saying, and some of them, like, how do I disciple them? And how do I call them into this uh, channeling their sexuality in a way that understands the idea that exclusivity is what makes for romance, not, not promiscuity does not make for romance. 
um, long-term romance, exclusivity, that sense of uniqueness with one other person, and that, of course, we talked all the traditional things about that with, with Christianity, but I'd have couples come to me and say, hey, uh, uh, we, we want to get married. We, wanna, we want to have God's blessing on this relationship, which is beautiful. But I was raised in a tradition where sometimes in order to do that, then you'd need to go have to, you know, do all kinds of shaming was involved. And so I had to make a choice early on, how am I going to see marriage? Am I going to see it as a missional opportunity or am I going to see it as a disintegrative shaming opportunity? And over the years, I've learned that I want to encourage people to turn their arrow towards Christ. And what's the next step in your relationship? And to begin to ask more of those questions in pastoral discipleship. There was an older generation where it was handled differently. Heard stories of people shamed by the church because, well, they were human and in a body, you know? And yes, they, they committed sin, but the church didn't know, so how do you help people take their next steps towards life and health in their relationships? Is it to condemn? Is it to come down with a hammer? There's very few behaviors like that unless it's a gross violation of power where you need to do a harsh, harsh intervention very rarely. Most of it is not that. So moving towards how do we help people take their next steps and pastorally I had to move towards that kind of thinking. Someone came to me and, you know, early on and wasn't a Christian. One was a Christian. They want to get married. Coming to the church, maybe for the first time, just like that son out eating his pods with the pigs and something was drawing them towards the church. How was I as a pastor going to respond? Was I going to say, well, you're not a member here. You're not living your lives as best as I can tell according to a traditional Christian sexual. What am I, how am I going to respond to this? What's the next step? What's the next step? If we're going to disciple one another well, we've got to get to a level of truth and authenticity where we can actually have those kind of conversations. How do we help people take the next step? Am I going to get them exactly where, um, exactly where in my mind I think they should be based on how I read scripture? Or am I going to help them take the next step discerning with others around them who know them, discerning in community, working with them? How do I help them take the next step? And I created some other things that I, in that process, understanding the importance of pre-marriage work, understanding the importance of rooting out other issues and all of that. But at the end of the day, I want to draw them closer to Jesus so that one day they have that testimony too. We were a bit messed up or we were really messed up. But we experienced grace. The pastor and the people that were in my group or the people that I experienced were kind towards us. They told us things we didn't necessarily want to hear, but they, they brought us into community. And in community, we began to experience a different kind of life, a different kind of love. In community, and later on, they will get the language, in community, we experience the power of God's grace and Holy Spirit. And who knows where that relationship would have gone without that. I could use many more examples like that over the years of ministry. But I'm 100% committed to this idea of how do we help people move towards Jesus in our discipleship process. There's more we'll say to get a little more um, focused on this in what, at least one more sermon on this, but stand with me this morning. Let's talk about next steps, our next steps together in this. If we're going to move towards a loving intervention instead of fuzzy, false tolerance or bounded, harsh judgmentalism, this requires that we center ourselves in Jesus. You need to get a better picture of Jesus for your life. You need to get a clearer sense of who Jesus is. You can enter into all kinds of circumstances throughout this world that traditional religiosity would just want to stay away from with a 20-foot pole. But if you are being filled with the Spirit 
in submission and community, aware of Jesus in your life and how Jesus is acting in your life, the power in you is greater than whatever is in the world. In fact, John in 1 John says this, you know, greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. If you're operating out of that, you can enter into all kinds of messes and you can begin to discern like Christ what is the next step. The story of woman caught in adultery. Pharisees were ready to condemn. Jesus takes on shame, enters into the situation. I still love the story so much of the running father, how that father takes on all of the social shame to welcome in someone. Before they repented, before they changed direction. Craziness. Before they fully admitted and confessed their, their destructive behaviors towards themselves and their community and the family. We need to center ourselves in Jesus first. We need to understand our roles in judgment. We are not called first to judge the world this side of eternity, friends. In fact, we withhold that. We leave that in God's hand because we don't see the full picture at all. We live in tension. We live in that place. We lean into that with ourselves and others. But we are called to judge and discern and intervene with those who are we are in community with. Speaking the truth in love. If you can't do it in love, then you are not called to speak that truth to that person. So that's something we really have to wrestle with in centered set discipleship. Am I their Holy Spirit or is the Holy Spirit placing me in their lives for this purpose or not? We are called again to intervene, to engage, but in a way that is guided through Christ in this love center. And when the church doesn't do that, we are no longer the church. We are something else. We are some other religion, but we are not Jesus-centered. I want to say a lot more about this, and I will, but not today. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this house. Thank you for your presence here this morning. And God, I pray that we would be the people that learn from the running father, that we hear the words of the Apostle Paul speaking the truth in love, that we are those who seek to walk alongside and help one another, and those that you draw in here take their next step. That we do not lead with lists, but it's the person over the rules. Sabbath doesn't transform by slavishly following it. It transforms when we enter into those rest by invitation and we desire to move there and we begin to see wholeness. And God, forgive us when we have been those that have weaponized your word or weaponized justice or weaponized the sense of our sense of right and wrong instead of leading out of that heart of love because we do want righteousness and justice and sanctification and holiness to flourish in our church, but authentic, not false holiness, authentic change. And Lord, we confess that we often want to be everyone's Holy Spirit. We want to put them on our timetable instead of working with you and the others that you've placed in their life. And God, we also confess that sometimes we think we have a clearer picture of what is right than you do. And we tend to impose a lot, our will. So God, help us to be less willful in that sense and to be more sensitive to where you are at work that we don't operate out of efficiency. Holiness doesn't come through efficient programs. Holiness comes through lifelong relationship, messy tension, living into it. 
So Lord, empower this people to be on a journey. Like it says in our name, we're a pilgrim church. We're not first church of the holy rules. We are on a journey. So Lord, we submit ourselves to you, to your word today. You do the work to help us reorganize our thoughts around this and our actions in Jesus' name.